Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Christian Machado, and we are about to discuss metal. This is the Discuss Metal Podcast with Christian Machado, hosted by Dan Terry and Joseph Wren. Presented by DiscussMetal.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Discuss Metal Podcast. I am your host, Dan, and with me tonight is Joe. What's up, everybody? You guys got lucky. It's just been me for like the past 10, 15 episodes, so uh, you get a little bit of something else. But more importantly, tonight we have Christian Machado with us. How are you doing tonight, man? Good, good, man. Just another California day. Uh, you know, it's a nice warm day, not too cold yet. Not super sunny today, so I guess the fall is starting to come in little by little and just catching some of what's going on in the news and trying to avoid the news also. No, just that. Yeah, I hear that 100%. Yeah, we're in Missouri, so autumn is in full is in full swing here. So it's like when I wake up in the morning, I'm like freezing cold and I like want to die. And then usually by the end of the day, uh, it's like so I come home because I turn the heater on in the morning and then I go to work and then I come home and the house is like unbearably warm. Because it, it it got up to like 60, 70 degrees outside. So uh yeah, it's uh it's a little rough uh here here right in the Midwest, but hasn't been no, too Missouri, bad. Missouri could get cold, man, for sure. Oh, yeah. I remember visiting like Kansas City, Missouri many times. I, my teen daughter lives in Kansas City, Missouri, and I remember visiting and being like, Oh my god, I can't believe how cold it gets here during the winter time. <laughs> like it's it's pretty, you know, it'll break through that jacket easily for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah, the wind blows and your head starts to hurt because it's so cold outside. <laughs> yeah, definitely been there. But uh, your uh, your solo album just came out, God, not that long ago. It was like, week or oh, so. can't, can't be more than a week, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like eight, nine days or something like that. So what has been uh, what has been the reception for that um, as far as far as now that it's out of the bag? I know you did a ton of press uh, prior to it leading up and I, you know, seeing seeing posts for it every day. And I even got to listen to it before it came out and um how how has it been received uh, by the by the audience at large? Um, the reception has been amazing so far. Um, a lot of the fans have opened their hearts and minds, ears to what it is. You know, I realize that it's a little bit different. It's possibly a lot different from some things they've heard in the past from me, but it might not be too different from some you know other lighter things I've done. Also, um, I, the reception has been amazing, man. I, I really can't. Other than a couple of fans that were like, ah, it's not my thing, but I accepted <laughs> that early on. You know, I accepted early on when I was doing an acoustic album that this isn't for everyone. Some metalheads that liked my old band, they just like their metal heavy. Sure. Uh, they like the music heavy. That's understood. And I accepted some people are going to think this is too light. But, um, but the percentage really, I mean, you know, it, it's not like I'm some huge artist, but all the like dislike percentages are like 98%, 97% of the fans like it. You know, I, I'm just grateful that they opened up their ears to it and, and, and that we can, that me and the fans can still connect musically on some sort of level, even though it's different. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like speaking for myself, especially like I've been listening for, for years. And so I've been listening to you sing for years. So I guess it wasn't like that big of a change in the sense that it's not like, it's not like you just like, you know, morbid angel vocaled your way through your whole career and then suddenly, you know, dropped a uh, dro dro dropped like a, a, an acoustic uh, album. 
um, we've been we've been hearing you sing melodically for years, you know. And so I think I think in that sense, it really wasn't that big of a transition other than the music itself. Sure, so. sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my vocal tone is still the same. And I might have mentioned on the other podcast that we did that most of the melodies, most of those chord progressions, most of those chords, you know, I used in El Nino songs. You know, I wrote so many of those songs on Revolution and on Confession, not just the lyrics and the melodies, but the music. So, you know, a lot of those chords are no different than like, like the dialogue chord, one of the chords on the dialogue is like a added second, which is something I used a lot for the bridge of God Save Us. You know, another song has like the seventh kind of chord sound, which is more what I did for the bridge of what comes around. So it's, you know, I, I played around with things that felt home to me that I knew weren't, you know, a completely foreign thing to me. I guess it was my way of just trying to find some comfort in doing something different. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's cool. Yeah, it's not it's like different, but it's not unfamiliar. I think that's that's a good distinction. Um, but uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to rewind the clock way far back, um, even to before El Nino and ask um, what got you into music or primarily what got you into music as a fan first? Um, I'm trying to think, what would you consider a fan what would you consider the line being crossed when you become a fan? Actually, like having a copy of the music or is it just the first moment you saw something that turned you more interested in, in it, into it? I guess. Uh, and it's funny, I've been, been anticipating. I've asked that question to like 30 different people and nobody's ever asked me that to, to clarify. Uh, but I'm ready for it because I, I knew somebody would eventually. Um I would say what got you into music to the point of, let's say you hear a band, you buy their record, you like their record, and then you decide to find all of that band's records. I think that's, I think that's, um, at least for me, that was whenever I realized that I wasn't just somebody that liked music, but I was somebody that was like really, really into music. Okay. Okay. So you're saying pretty much when I became like someone that wanted to have albums of that genre and stuff like that. Correct. Um, I would definitely say, cause I got turned on to, music in general when i was a very very young kid my father is a musician well my father that i didn't meet until later on in my life was a musician um and a producer for a lot of brazilian bands but i didn't know too much about him until later on in my life and in my early early childhood i experienced like small windows of musicality where my mother told me my father's a musician my mother plays acoustic guitar she taught me a little bit how to play acoustic guitar when i was a kid um, and I experienced small windows of feeling like that's what I wanted to do. Like that, the first concert I ever went to, I was, I don't know, five, six years old, maybe. And it was an Argentinian acoustic guitar player that just plays acoustic guitar and sings. So it's ironic that I came back to this. But the, 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 the thing that turned me into like a full-fledged music fanatic, I mean, one, one of the instances, I can remember three things. Um, when I came to the U.S., my cousin who I have a Polish cousin, the, the, my mother's mother, my grandmother was Polish. Her entire family was from Poland, but she had made her way to South America. And that's how, you know, my mother and the rest of the family came to be. But um, family from her side, ultimately, when we came to the U.S., visited the U.S. and stayed with us. We were living in Queens, New York at the time. And I remember my cousin Damien visited. And at that time, I think it was like, I want to say 88. 87 it was pre injustice for all 
it was after Master of Puppets. Um, I don't think that Garage Days had come out yet. But I remember him coming over. He was a huge Iron Maiden fan, like huge. And in Poland, they love Iron Maiden. They love metal in general. I mean, they're metalheads in Poland. So he was one of the first ones that came over and did the whole, like, let me show you albums. Let me show you vinyl things. He took me to the record store, you know. He showed me, like, all the coolest, the Scorpion cover, the Judas Priest covers, the Maiden. And me, I, I right away took to Maiden, you know. I don't know what it was. I have no idea. I remember the first instance that, I, that made me a fanatic was, like, reading the lyric to Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And I, and I remember having read, having been forced to read that book in school, you know. And then being able to appreciate it as a music fan was like, oh, okay. Well, that is cool then, huh? I shouldn't hate it the, as much as I hated it doing. Look, if a band could talk about it, it must be cool. Um, so that kind of turned me into a music fanatic. But there was instances that kind of led me there, small little things. For sure, my, my Polish cousin Damien and Maiden and Metallica, to me, made that, like, I'm a full-fledged music fanatic. I want to buy albums. I want to play music. I want to do the whole thing. But, you know, small little steps led me there. Like in Venezuela, I had seen... The uh, Van Halen 1984 record cover, which for that time, you know, anybody seeing that record cover, the little baby with angel wings smoking a cigarette, you know, I mean, how is that not shocking, you know? And I remember seeing it at a supermarket in Venezuela at Gada. Gada is like the national supermarket and they had it in an alleyway. They had albums there and other Spanish artists. But obviously the one that stuck out was the little baby with angel wings smoking a cigarette, you know? Um, and that was one thing that led that kind of opened my mind to like, what is this? You know, kind of made me interested in this darker side of music instead of like the more pop Latin icon thing that I was mostly used to hearing. You know, even though my mom liked rock, you know, in, in Venezuela, she listened to everything, a little bit of rock, but a lot of Latin artists and stuff. And then another thing that kind of put me further was seeing Kiss perform at Rock and Rio um, on TV, on Venezuelan TV. And, you know, it was like a rerun or something. And I remember seeing it and that drew me even closer to the dark side of music. You know, and I don't know whether you call it the dark side or just the more mysterious side of music, the rock side. But um, and then by the time I came to the U.S. and was here and got to meet my cousin, you know, I was ready for the full for the full Monty. He took me to a record store. We went to go see an Iron Maiden concert. He took me to a Bon Jovi concert. I didn't like it. Um, so then I knew I started figuring out in my head, like, oh, I'm a metalhead. Oh, and that stuff, yeah, maybe I'm I'm a I'm a heavy metalhead, you know? Things like that mainly. That that's uh being in New York also, having moved to New York and you know, uh experiencing things like WSOU, which is the college radio station in New York, New Jersey, who are famous for, you know, giving a break to so many metal bands that came out of the area there. Um mm -hmm. Listen, being able to listen to that on the radio to me definitely had to have made a big difference in how I felt. You know, being able to turn on the radio and hear metal was a huge, huge inspiration to me, you know. And still to this day, I have a lot of friends in radio and I tell them all the time, you know, fuck, if, if I hadn't had WSOU in radio when I first moved here, I don't know if the full link between what I saw and what I wanted to do would have really realized, you know. <laughs> so you know from that point um you know being a fan of music i guess at that point it was a no-brainer to start picking up a guitar and learning how to play your own music 
Well, at that point, I knew a couple of acoustic guitar chords and stuff like that. My mom had told me how to play some chords, but um, when she realized that I was interested in music, at one point I remember in I was going to school at one of the Harrison, New Jersey elementary schools, and they had like some talent contest. And I remember that we we did like a uh, lip sync version of Ace Freely, one of the Ace Freely songs on Freely's Comet. I forgot what it was. And uh, and that kind of gave me a little bit of the, oh, that's what performance feels like. And then you get to feel a little cool, you know. Um, but I, I don't know, I guess, man, I don't know. It was a lot of small little incremental movements that turned me into a metalhead. I guess I could have definitely been down the road of, you know, uh, Ricky Martin easily. <laughs> hey, you never know. You know, there's uh, in, in an alternate in an alternate timeline. It could be a totally different story that we're telling tonight. There's still time. There's still time, Dan. Absolutely. We can we can make it happen. Uh, I'll call I'll call a guy. He can hook you up with an agent. It'll be it'll be awesome. Um, so you know, you, not only were you playing guitar, but you obviously um, you know were were singing. What what uh, what led you into you know from just obviously just from metal into kind of like more um, more hardcore you know type of screaming? I mean, I, I would assume that you know you were talking about New York earlier. That's probably the answer to that question um but uh what got you into into kind of that heavier uh screamier like hardcore music um i think the first experience that i got of something really really heavy like you know that you can't even understand really what's going on i think was venom black metal was the first album that i heard that might have been you know this thing that you listen to and you go fuck i can't really understand what this is let me you know let me keep listening to it and keep paying attention um, another album was Slayer Rain and Blood that made me begin to appreciate the heavier, more eclectic metal, you know, that wasn't just straightforward, um, didn't have anything pretty about it. You know, it wasn't about politics. It was all about like war and, you know, really dark topics. Um, and but but the ultimate thing that I would imagine did it, did it, because the thing that was most drastic to me was being introduced to death metal. I was death metal monger for like, I don't know, from the time that I was like 19 to 25, 26, really. I mean, I, I mainly played in death metal bands and did that for as long as I could until I got tired of it and wanted to do something else. But, um, but being introduced to death metal was one thing that definitely drew the line. There was no going back after that. You know, I knew hardcore and I knew things like that. But when, when I heard, when I first heard death, you know, Chuck Schuldner death, to me, that that drew a line. You know, when I heard the album Leprosy, I was like, whoa, what the fuck is this? Because it was heavy. It was brutal. It was different, but it was catchy. It had its catchy things. It wasn't like Venom. You know, Venom was like just it wasn't there was nothing really catchy about it. It was just like this onslaught of like music and sound and just constantly, you know, just stabbing the listener, basically, where death they made you think a little bit more. The parts changed a lot. You know, there was from groove to fast. And then the riffs had a lot of like classical elements to it. So to me, that made, that opened up my ear to, to, um, to brutal metal, I guess, screaming mostly. And then the, the other two bands that I would say um, definitely did it was, you know, Fear Factory was a band that for me changed a lot. Not only did they kind of introduce me to metal and melodic, extreme metal and melodic stuff can live together. So through Burton and Dino, 
I, I pretty much, you know, learned to love the extremes being in the same style. Um, even though you you could debate, you know, the fact that we didn't really go too, they didn't do anything too melodic. They were still very, very brutal band. It just opened up my ear to it. Little by little, I kind of started going on that route. Um, and, you know, the, the hardcore scene also in New York City, like you said, that kind of gave me a little bit of a, of a, a sentiment of the underground but it wasn't as extreme as the other bands, you know, the other bands were really extreme. Like when you hear death, when you hear venom, you know, when you hear like obituary, when I first heard the obituary cause of death album, when I, I mean, when I heard James Murphy soloing over death metal at that point, there was no going back. Then there was no going back because I realized not only is this the most extreme kind of dark music that you can make, but holy fuck, the melodies are beautiful over it. You know, and James Murphy managed to do that. So to me, that once I heard that, I there was no going back. I knew I was going to be a fan of extreme metal forever. And even now, doing acoustic music, you know, I'm like, I'll listen to like City and Color one second, and then Meshuggah's on. It's right. Way, you know? I'm not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's yeah. mainstream. When I was younger, maybe I wouldn't have been so like back and forth. You know, I maybe smaller things and bigger increments. But now it's just like you know. But if I just let iTunes play whatever it plays, man, somebody might lose their mind. <laughs> I, I love I love that you brought up Cause of Death because that's probably my favorite obituary record. And like James Murphy, you know, like you said, he he cuts through all that sludge. It's like a it's like a lightsaber, man. Like I don't know what it is. It's just like he's so um I don't even know what the word is. It's just obituary is just like so gloom and doom. And just to have something that like comes through that's like super like beautiful kind of in a way uh that really really cuts through that that that's what really what makes that obituary album really unique versus yeah, their others genius album without yeah. this album you know yeah. and i mean he, he went on to do things like when we he did disincarnate it was cool and stuff but cause of death you know that's like a fucking classic classic album that who knows it'll that anything else could ever be made like that you know i mean all, all that all that early death metal stuff um death obituary all that stuff what i liked about those bands is like uh death's the sound of perseverance album um is kind of the one that did it for me as far as like you would have all these like super techie heavy parts and chuck's like screaming like a demon over it you know by the time you get to that point but then they would like stop and play this like weird like melodic bridge it's like super technical like i could never play it you know but like it's it's it just it makes you feel really good even though you're still like it's 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 that level where like just listening to the music starts making you feel invincible because it's got the heaviness but it's also got that melody and it gives it kind of this finesse and uh to kind of tie this back in to you that's i mean that's kind of how i felt when i first heard god save us on a on on a sampler disc that one of my friends gave me you know he's like dude you check he's like dude check out track i think it was like he's like check out check track four you know, it's like this band El Nino, and it's like, you know, and at the time I was still very much like, no, I don't know, oh, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was it like a Roadrunner sampler? So it had, it had like Slipknot and like, uh, it had El Nino Spine and other bands. Spineshank, you know, Spineshank was on all those samplers. Too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Spineshank was on that one. Um, and I checked out that, so I checked out that song and I loved it. And I was like, man, this is, 
this is a lot different than what I'm used to listening to. Cause I was kind of one of those guys. It was like, I don't like bands that sound like Slipknot because they're not super whatever. And like, as an adult, I look, I go back and listen to Slipknot. I was like, this stuff's awesome. Like, why did I trash it whenever I was younger? You know, but like now, um, now I kind of have, have, I, I, what I'm trying to get at is I really, really latched onto that record, like really hard. And it's so funny, like to the, to the point where I listened to it, I was actually like run like jogging every day and I would listen to Revolution Revolution whenever I bought it. And I was just like, man, this is this is so good. And I and I and I had to share this story just because um it's just so funny to me looking back. I was telling my wife about it when I got home from work today. I was like, uh I was like, I had this, I must have been like 14 years old at the time when that record came out. And, uh, my, I had a girl come over to my house. She wasn't my girlfriend. It wasn't like really a date or anything, but like, I was hoping it was going to like be that, you know, but, uh, it ended up, uh, we're talking and hanging out and stuff in my room or like watching, watching a movie. I think it was like a Metallica DVD or something that I, that I put in or whatever. And she sits down on one of my chairs and I just hear this crunch and I go, and I'm just like, stand up, stand up right now. Dude, she sat on my Revolution Revolution CD and broke it in half. Like, I mean, two pieces. Like, there, there was no saving it. And you got to understand, I was 14. And this is like 2001, like 2002. Heartbreak. Yeah, and I must have, and I must have like, I mean, you got to think, you got to think that year, I probably paid like $17.99 for that CD or something. And I was 14, so I didn't have a car, you know, or like really any money or anything. So like, I was like, man, I'm, never going to, I'm never going to replace that. Like it's, it's gone. Uh, needless to say, there was not a second, uh, date, uh, after that I was as an adult, I realized it was my fault for leaving my CDs on a chair. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. But yeah. So like that, that, that was kind of my first introduction, um, to you and your singing. And, and I think that like, the funny thing is, is at the time I was trying to be like a hardcore, I was trying to be a hardcore screamer. I was trying to figure out how that works, you know, with the voice. And so I remember like trying to scream along to the songs and I couldn't do it. Um, I got, I, I did it developing a pro- relatively good screaming voice, but it didn't ever sound like that record. Did that, I, so I guess like, and I always said, if I ever have a chance to talk to Christian, I'm going to ask him, did that record like hurt you to record? Because the vocals on it are so like sick, like, so like, like it's, it's not like the other bands at the time at all like it was like my voice a couple times recording that album uh, i was i was wondering because when i was trying to do it it hurt me so bad yeah i'm definite i did i mean on that album man it it was crazy because i really wasn't a singer at all you know i had played in death metal bands the whole time and i even sang in a death metal band for a little while but i never really cared about how to take care of your voice, you know, how to sing more than one rehearsal, you know, how to do things differently with your voice. I didn't care about none of that. Um, and on Revolution, Revolution, you know, I had literally, like, we basically, it basically was like, I wrote a bunch of songs, we put them together, we got signed, and I had to go on tour, and make an album and go on tour. So I had to figure out really how to do it while we were, you know, making an album. I remember taking a couple of like vocal lessons with Don Lawrence and Don Lawrence helped me with like how to sing without like placing it too below your vocal cords so that you're trashing them. Um, and that, that was helpful, but on Revolution Revolution, definitely those screams were like, you know, very, they were done on an SM7. I was holding the SM7 
for most of those parts. I remember I layered it, like the producer, uh, Ron St. Germain, made me layer the singing vocals with the SM7 held up without me touching it. But other than that, that's really all we did. On that first album, he let me and the band do whatever the hell we wanted. There was no intervention from production. There was no label coming in being like, oh, you should change that. You should try that. No, they Roadrunner left us completely alone. They left Ron St. Germain alone. Ron St. Germain left us alone. Um, other than like poking us on a couple of songs and being like, oh, that song, you got to work on it a little more. That's literally all he would say, you know? And then I'd go in and try to figure out what exactly I should change. And then I'd find something else I liked and try that. But I was really just figuring it out, you know? And a lot of those screams were done without without the producer there because Ron St. Germain felt like, ah, those are just screaming vocals. Fuck those things. But, I, you know, I kept insisting, no, this is my style and there's going to be a ton of screaming on the album. And sorry that this is what it has to be. I was still coming off of being like this death metal monger in my head. Yeah, I like melodic shit, but it had to be brutal. Eventually, some points had to be brutal. Um, and Ron St. Germain, I remember him being like, ah, that's, uh, all that screaming stuff. You guys could do it on your own. I don't even have to be here. And I was like, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> you know? So we did whatever. I just screamed my head off. I remember a couple of times I had to take like two days off. And my voice was all sore, which I don't have to do that anymore. I could sing for like fucking two weeks straight now. And I know how to place it a little bit differently. But then again, I might not be able to make it sound. I could make it sound exactly like that, but I'd probably be fucking on my voice a little bit because I really wasn't doing it the right way, you know? And possibly holding the mic had a lot to do with the way it sounded. Usually producers don't want you to even touch the microphone. And yeah. Rob just didn't give a shit, you know? He let me do whatever I wanted. Well, I'm glad he let you do whatever you wanted because that record has this intense onslaught of screaming and melodic vocals that... Sounds like you're in a tunnel. It's like you're projecting yeah, oh, a oh, missile yeah. of intensity. I mean, I've yeah, never, yeah, yeah. I've listened to a lot of heavy, fucking harsh sounding vocals because of this guy, and none of them sound like you on that record. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I was still, you know, it was like a throw it up in the air, see what feels good. <laughs> it was like throwing spaghetti at a wall. That one stuck. Okay, it sounds good. Do that again. <laughs> He and I have this ongoing discussion about who found that record first because he had the sampler. I had Headbangers Ball trying to oh, find either Syphil and Ollie or Beavis and Butthead, whatever was on that night. And right in the middle of the show, they're talking about this band that was trying to be the most melodic and the most heavy thing, but all at the same time. And that was a concept that made no sense to me. You know, and the band that made me want to do shit like that was without a doubt Fear Factory, you know? And even though El Nino sounds nothing like Fear Factory, but just just the pure notion of putting in my head melodic and heavy brutal can fit together great, you know? That alone made me kind of like start searching for things and how do we make it unique and stuff like that. That's eventually how we got to like the Latin metal element of it. But really, it was all, you know, just... Mostly growing up as a, as a Latino music listener and then being turned into this freaking death metal monger, basically a heavy metal head. And then coming back and finding like artists like, like Fear Factory and maybe Tool showed me that melodic and really dark music can be together. Um, and, you know, from there, I don't know, man, I would, we were all just figuring it out as musicians. I'd imagine the chemistry had a little bit of play into it, but, you know, I'm, I'm very very proud of those couple of albums, man. I was, I really had no formula. It was like, uh, this feels right. This sounds good. 
you know, and that's what I tell a lot of artists when they ask me, like, what would you recommend? Well, first, pick the right people to jam with. And second, make sure that you're doing something that feels really good, that you could say, this is great. I feel great about this. Something you could stand behind, basically. So you put that record out. I know we skipped a lot, but I'm trying to like be time conscious a little bit. But um, the most, most in depth, like, and I mean, it, we could go on for hours. I mean, I probably should write a book eventually. For like, you should. How we <laughs> came up and who we played with, who gave us shots, who didn't. You know, I probably should, but this is as in depth as I've ever done. Like, your questions are on point for sure. Yeah, we try. I mean, we that's. I like it to be autobiographical because. I like these episodes to age well and to talk about like real history with somebody and, and what they kind of went through. So I guess like in the spirit of that, what is, what is the, what is the transition for you as far as like playing in a, in a semi-popular band that suddenly gets signed to one of the biggest uh, metal labels in the world. And then suddenly you're on the road all the time. What, what is that transition like, you know, going from music as my hobby to music as my job? It was, it was new. It didn't feel strange. Um, and it was comforting. I, you know, it felt amazing to be able to put music out and connect with people, be able to play shows and just feel the raw energy of people enjoying music together. Um, I mean, things like that, I, I think I really didn't think too much about like how when we got signed, I didn't go too in depth into like how successful are we going to be? I didn't question myself at all, you know. I made maybe it was for good reasons. We were just young and doing our thing, and that's what needed to happen in order in order for us to make something unique. But um, but th- there are like small steps that kind of made me wonder, made me think, oh, oh wow, I, I guess we're getting popular, you know? Because I it, it is it is like a you know you, you make an album and then you're basically nobody and you're a local band then and then the local people like you, but at those times, there was no social media. You know, there was no like finding out if people like you. You'd have to like call somebody on a landline and start asking people, do people in that town have our album there? You know, like the label would let you know once in a while, you know, the album's doing good. The reviews are coming in. They're doing good, you know. But the, the one thing that completely changed everything Um I would say was when, again, radio, when radio took to what comes around, it changed everything. I mean, what comes around was the number one song in the country for like, I don't know, four or five weeks. I know it was number one in New York City for like six, seven weeks. So I'm, I'm not sure what the charts were. I know for like four or five weeks, it was number one across the country. And that it wasn't so much that it gave us like, oh, we must have something. We knew we had something cool, but it kind of made us realize Oh, okay. Somebody's catching on. So maybe now the label is going to help us. Maybe now they're going to like start pushing, you know? Um, and that's ultimately what happened. You know, when radio took to, when, when K-Rock 92.3 took to what comes around, the label Roadrunner Records was all in. They were like, okay, we're interested. You know, we're interested in what this could do in the long run. Um, so that was a stepping point that kind of thought. And I remember it was Chris Booker that first took the song on and it was you know, I was dating a girl at the time who was a who was a DJ at WKTU in New York City, and she was friends with Booker, and she got Booker to one of our shows eventually, and I hung out with him, and I pitched him the band really hard, you know, and then gave him a CD. He took a CD to K Rock, and I think it was uh, Mike Mike Peer that was the music director at the time, and he really loved it. 
But all of that led from SOU. WSOU kind of gave us, you know, the climb into getting signed. And then K-Rock took on the song and that really changed it nationally. Once New York City K-Rock started playing the songs, all the other radio stations started paying attention. And it kind of brought our album sales from like 1,000 to 1,500 a week. Once we passed 5,000 records a week for more than like four or five weeks, the label was all in. They were like, okay, this is selling well. We're interested. We're going to keep putting money behind it. And that's when we started like touring more. Um, our RV broke down. The label helped us get a tour bus. You know, we started realizing, okay, they're investing. Something good must be happening. They're not as like, oh, figure it out. You're going, yeah, okay, well, where are you going? An RV or a van? And then when we started missing shows, then they started becoming concerned and they wanted us on a bus. And we realized that they had a little bit of equity in it. Um, and it changed from there, you know? And then I remember another stepping point was uh, playing a WSOU show in Newark, New Jersey at some baseball field. It was like a festival and Haybreed and Lamb of God were there and everybody, you know, everybody that was cool was there. And these are people that we knew, you know, from just being in the New York scene, just coming up. And, um, and that was like uh, the first time that I got like fans wanting to meet me. You know, the song had been getting a little bit of spinning uh, airplay and stuff like that. But I remember playing that show and like fans wanted my autograph, which, you know, it, it was like, whoa, I guess we are known a little bit, you know? And then after that, like I realized like, I, 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 a lot of things changed me and I went through some separations and fucked up shit and realized, oh, you got to be careful with fame. It could really like jade you, you know? And so I did have my own personal issues with how all that played out, you know, but I guess I just wasn't that, um, that strongly centered within myself to really accept it all and understand what it all was. I was just a musician. I got lucky and then people wanted to meet me and I was like, oh, fuck, this is so weird. Um, but Luckily, it was it was radio, man. You know, I mean, I, I, I'd be radio and the fans. You know, it really was just like radio giving us a chance. First, it was WSOU, then K Rock made it a national thing for us. And beyond that, it was really just the fans following up, wanting wanting to go to the shows. We went to shows and just played as hard as we fucking could. You know, that's that was our motto. Just we come from the New York hardcore scene, and the bands that we learned from, they leave it all on the stage. So that's what we're going to try to do. And that's what we did. The fans paid attention, but it was really radio that helped us realize, well, our song's on radio. It's number one. Oh, I guess we better take this serious. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny. I, when I was at work today, I listened, I decided just cause, you know, I knew we were doing this tonight and I was like, I'm going to listen to, I'm going to listen to Samuel Nino, you know, kind of get myself back in the zone. And uh, so I listened to the confessions album and um, and I'm not going to lie to you back whenever we did. So Joe and I do another show called discography discussion where we talk about a band's whole discography. It's not the most creative name in the world, but um, and I remember like totally trashing the confessions album being like, it's not as heavy as revolution revolution. And you know how credits are, or you know how critics are, right? Like we're just like, story on that after you finish that though. Okay. Okay, good. I'm, 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 I'm game to hear it, but I mean, yeah, you must've been going through some stuff because when I listened to that record today, I was like, man, this is like so much more intimate in, into a person's mind, really even more so than we, than we had gotten from revolution revolution. So I was kind of like, there, there had to have been some sort of toll that was taken, uh, you know, b- between those two records, because you go from a record that's like super aggressive, it's pissed off. It's metal. You know what I mean? It, it's, it has to be that right. Like it has to be pissed off. It has to be uh super aggressive. And then you get to confession, which is, 
not as aggressive, but much more personal Yeah, uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the main thing that happened between Revolution and Confession, at least in terms of, the, the, you know, the music being a little bit more personal and also the lyrics being a lot more personal was I got my heart broken, you know? I was just out there chasing girls and got into a relationship, probably got my heart broken a couple times and wanted to just let it out. You know, Confession was kind of like that album. But I got a really interesting story on Confession because when we, man, it was so stressful after Revolution. I remember the record came out, it did well. We went on the Jägermeister tour, um, established a really, really good rapport with the fans. We're playing live. Then we came back to the Ozfest and then reestablished that rapport playing live. And I remember there was this, this huge battle between management and Roadrunner. Our, our manager at the time was Bobby Carlton at, the, at uh, Andy Gould Management. Um, we used, later became the firm or was the firm, I forgot. Um, and him and us and the label were having these huge battles about we wanted to go back on tour. You know, we felt like Revolution Revolution. We could tour, and we had been doing two years of solid touring. And at that time, our mentality was like, why the fuck would we go back in the studio now? All the venues are selling out right now. We need to keep going. And the label was like, obviously, they probably had probably spent most of the marketing money on that album. So without having new material that they could sell for the same price to the same fans all over again, they were probably like, we can't keep throwing money at this because the record sales have slowed down. Most of the fans have bought it. We need some new material. So there was this huge battle of whether El Nino was going to go on tour with a couple of other bands or if we were going to go back into the studio to make an album. Now, the, the, the sad part of, you know, and then there, it's not a sad part, but, you know, the unfortunate part of it being a music business is, you know, the label was investing money. Um, they wanted new material. They saw how important the single was to the deflection of our career from where it was to where it wound up. So the whole time the label kept thinking, no more road, no more road, write singles, write singles, write singles. That right there fucked me up, you know? Because I never, as a musician in my life, I never, I had never been told what kind of song to write ever in my life. Like I, like I told you guys, Revolution, Revolution, those were songs that I wrote like, six, seven years before the album, like Roomba was written like seven years before the album came out. That riff was like a 10 year old riff. As far as I can remember, it wound up on the record because every, you know, the band was like, whoa, what's that? You know, but um, to me, it was like, fuck, man, I, I, I don't know. I had never been told write singles, write singles. What comes around just kind of like fell out, you know, out of a moment of creativity in like my mother's basement when I was like 22 or some shit like that. But you know, the label, like, write singles, we need singles, because radio, and then it fucked up my mind. I went into, like, this cocoon of, like, my heart is broken, and I'm sad, and I have to write mellow songs, you know? And it was almost like a depression that I didn't want to admit to myself then, because I was still having fun and, you know, experiencing all the uh, additives of the music industry. <laughs> but, um, but for sure, it screwed me up. It left me, like, in this, like, what do I have to write? Like, I didn't, I didn't even understand what a single was. I didn't, I didn't write what comes around as a single. I wrote it as just a song. It just wound up on radio. It's just all it is. And I remember when they made me, like, redo the screams, when they were like, we have to take the screams of the song so that radio could play it more. I, what 
a huge argument I had with Roadrunner about this shit and management and even the guys in the band who were all for it. And I'm like, are you fucking nuts? I was like, are you guys crazy? Like, this is what kids want to hear now. They want to hear like heavy vocals in there with other melodic shit. And, uh, you know, they, they forced me to do it. And I didn't, I just didn't want to be that guy that pissed off the band, pissed off the label, pissed everybody else off. Um, but the song was already on radio and radio was loving it. And even stations in Texas didn't want anything to do with the, with the clean vocal version of it. Like Corpus Christi, all they played was the heavy version. Most of the Texas stations, that's all they played. So in my mind, I was like, you guys are nuts, you know? In Texas, they're playing the heavy version because that's what kid, kids like, you know? Um, so it left me a little bit, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but unsure about what I needed to do. And I started writing a lot of melodic songs. Now, when we went to record the album, the issue was that not only did they want us to write single, 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 singles, they put us in the studio with a producer who also was going to be like single, 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 singles. You know, if they would have maybe told us single, 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 singles, and then let us do whatever we wanted, maybe there would have been more like a, a, a yin and yang there. But we went into the studio and I'm not knocking at all the production on Confession because Marlette did an amazing job. He was purely doing what he was asked to do, make sure that we have some songs that really connect melodically. But, um, but I remember he, he really even furthermore lightened things up. By the time we were, we were at Water Music in Hoboken for about, I want to say four weeks, five weeks, finished the whole album, turned it into the label, Roadrunner Records comes back, half of the record is garbage. Literally, just like that. Half of the record has to be thrown out. It's too light. Wow. And that, you know, and I told you all that shit about singles. And after having been driven so hard into that direction, even from the guys in my band who knew I was the songwriter, like, come on, the label wants singles, the label wants singles. It was, you know, it left me like, fuck, are you kidding me? They asked this from us. And then, and then they, and now they realize that this is too light, like the way I felt the whole fucking time. So to me, it was like, all right, at least, at least they're listening a little bit now. You know, they got what they asked for and they realized it wasn't exactly the right thing. Then from there, they allowed us to go back into the studio, in which I went back into the studio with mainly it was just Dave and I in Mirror Image in New York. And we recorded the other half of the album, like all the other songs that you hear, like um, Cleansing, uh, what's, what was the first single, uh, The Amo I Hate You, Rebirth, Two, like all those songs were done at Mirror Image. You know, all the cool, heavy songs on confession. Yeah, the heavier tracks, yeah. yeah they were done just Dave and I. Me playing all the guitars, recording all the guitars, you know, and just writing everything, Dave and I arranging, and being left alone, really. We went back to, like, that chemistry of, like, the label realized the album got fucked up because it was pushed too much towards a direction we sh- probably shouldn't have. Um, and, and they realized, let's put them back in the studio, leave them alone, and hopefully they'll be able to save the album, which... I think we did because the label later wound up picking like one of the songs we did on our own as the lead single, like the heavy single. And, but they felt comfortable with How Can I Live? Like they always loved How Can I Live that came out of the Bob Marlette sessions. And, you know, they felt like that was a great single. At least they got one single kind of like what they thought we should kind of divert to, even though to me it was still like a throw up in the air. I would have liked it much better if the label would have stayed focused with us and realized we're a heavy band. Um and it would have been great if they just would have told us, look, just write 30 songs and let's hope that we got a great couple of singles in there. Instead of like, you guys got to, radio loves you guys and you got to do this for, you know, where to me it was like, well, hold on. 
I think they took on to us because they like kind of like what we're doing. You know, at that time, it was still a little bit of cockiness going on as far as like that young musician. You know, um, if our song got on the radio and kids like it, why are you now telling me what to do? <laughs> you know, but um, but it left me fucking baffled as to like what exactly I was supposed to write in my mind. You know, I, I wanted to be like the New York hardcore post punk version of Fear Factory. You know, in my mind, it was like quicksand riffs and like Fear Factory. And like, I love death metal, but I like the death tones, you know, and it was it just kind of left me a little bit up in the air, confused, probably the right word. And then when the label let us go back into the studio, I, I at least, you know, didn't feel as heartbroken about it, about what had occurred. And, you know, they let us kind of make right by how we felt the song, the album needed some heavy songs, kind of like what we did in the first album, even though it wasn't necessarily exactly like the first album. I think there was a little bit of a style shift. And I, I, I suppose maybe that's something we can be proud of as musicians is, you know, we've really never put out an album that sounds exactly the same. We've always kind of like tried to grow as musicians and see the next phase as clearly as possible, you know, given all the obstacles. Did they send you back in the studio before or after they made How Can I Live the single, the radio single? Well, well, ironically, they sent us, we entered the studio after How Can I Live had already been chosen to be on the Freddy vs. Jason soundtrack. So they, they, Roadrunner came to Water Music, the owners of the label, Case Wessels was there, uh, uh, Derek Shulman was there, the radio people were there. They all came and heard like the two or three songs that could have been the singles. It was like Numb and uh, This Time's For Real and How Can I Live? And they all felt very strongly about How Can I Live uh, being a song they wanted to put forward uh, as like something like on a soundtrack or something that can give us more listening base, more you know fans and stuff like that. So they made that decision. They said, we like the song. Let's put it on the soundtrack. We're going to be in charge of licensing the songs on the soundtrack so we'll put it on Freddy versus jason and then after that after they had made that decision the rest of the label like our a and r guy mike gitter monty connor um our product manager uh matt i mean all those people were like oh the record's a little bit too light this could be get dangerous and they could lose a lot of fans and it was more like the 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 deeper staff at the label not like the top heads that said, oh, no, we, we need more songs like this, and then, and then it'll be right. That blows my mind because you sold at least two copies of the Freddy vs. Jason soundtrack because he and <laughs> I went to see that movie, and it's in the credits. We're talking about the movie. It's great. We love it. And we had to stop for a second and decide if that was El Nino we were hearing because they played you over, t- the, over the credits. I told you it wasn't. Yeah. I was like, no. El Nino is so much more brutal than this. Like it's, it can't be them. It's got to be a band that sounds like them. Yeah, I remember that. That was, I was wrong. But yeah, we were sold on the hype. I approve. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it was it was a big chance for us. I'm not knocking it. I just it would be, you know. I mean, we're humans. We we all go. What would have happened if we would have this, you know? And it's not that I'm living in the past, but it probably would have been cool if the label would have just given us a little bit more support. If the band would have maybe sided with me a little bit more and like, no, let Chris do his thing, you know, or something like that. But, you know, a lot of people also love that album. They, I think they wouldn't like it as much as they do if it came out the way it came out of water music. Cause if we hadn't gone back in 
to really add all those innocent, not overproduced elements back into Confession, it probably would have been an album that would have turned a lot of fans off. Is that why the next record was so much heavier? Probably. You know, I mean, we were, and also Aru had come into the band at the time, and by then he started doing a songwriting. He he wanted yeah. to write songs and stuff, and even though I was the main songwriter for the first two albums, I wasn't going to be someone that was going to tell my bandmates, no, I write the music here, and it's only me, it's my show. You know, I, at that point, we had all worked hard. Everybody proved themselves, you know? There wasn't like, uh, I'm the guy driving the shit. It was like, we're in this, we got to keep going, you know? You got songs, let's hear them. Come on, let's hear the shit. And he, he definitely brought some really killer shit to the table when, when, uh, when One Nation Underground, when it was time to write the songs for One Nation Underground. I got like three songs on that album, but that's really about it. By that time, we like, were trying to be more of a group. You know, We did a lot of touring together, had become friends, brothers, and kind of realized um, you know, that sharing the responsibilities and just sharing the creative element was, was going to be fun. I remember at the time I was listening. So like I had moved on beyond like stuff like Slipknot and like Mudvayne and Spine Shank and all that. What were you listening to after? So I was, I was at the time I was definitely more of a like kill switch engage as I lay dying, you know, like it's, it's yeah, what everybody was into at the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like a smaller, further progression of like extreme, but melodic and, and hard. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when none, one nation underground came out and like, I, I'm not going to lie when I was a teenager, I did not like confession. And so I was just like, eh, okay. El Nino has a new record out. I guess I'll check it out. And then, so like this dude, Joe, he bought it. Um, and then he was like, no, seriously, you need to listen to this. I think you're going to actually like really enjoy it. You know? <laughs> and I was like, do you know all that stuff you were complaining about on the last record? They fixed it. It's all gone. Yeah. <laughs> that's like, amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> It's funny too, though, because I listened to it was like Windows 10 or something, <laughs> right? No, but it's funny. I like I listened to it today at work, uh, confession today at work, and I liked it. I was like, I actually kind of really dig this record. You know, like it's it's so weird looking at looking at stuff that you hated when you were a kid, and I didn't hate it. Like it hates such a really strong word, but like kids are dumb, and kids, especially that are into heavy music. It wasn't yeah. a lot of songs felt like that. It wasn't really what they wanted from us. You know, right? I yeah. felt that way too. And that's why I, I'm like, that's why I, I knew that it was, I mean, it, it, it did great for us and it, it almost went gold and all that. But, you know, part of me musically was like, God, I wish I would have been, they would have just left me alone, <laughs> you know? Totally. Well, and, you know, the thing I thought was interesting is that you were, you know, El Nino was one of the few bands that actually transitioned, you know, in a way like with the times in the sense of, you know, bands were playing heavier stuff. They were playing, um, you know, more breakdowns, more heavy, you know, heavy screaming and, and, and all that. And even on radio, even on radio, by the time One Nation Underground came around, they didn't want as many radio edits. Mm-hmm. Like the label, even themselves, start step back a little bit from like the radio edit, you know, get rid of the heavy vocal, put clean vocal in place of it. Like they did that with Slipknot too. When you hear Wait and Bleed radio version, there is no screaming in the verses, you know? It's like this cool singing thing that he does. But um, but even by One Nation Underground, you're right, 100%. Things were already changing, you know? And even labels started realizing, oh, fans that buy music do want to hear this little bit heavier stuff, you know? And I think they, they themselves, they, Killswitch getting a couple songs on radio did that too, you know? And it opened up the door for sure. 
Yeah, for sure. And like, uh, so I'm, I'm going to skip a little bit ahead. I know I'm skipping an entire record, uh, in this, but I remember getting really hardcore back into El Nino, uh, when dead new world came out and I was, uh, so this is funny. This is, this is a really funny side note. So at that time, that was like what, 2005, 2006, I could look it up, but I'm not going to do that. Yeah, um, but like, yeah, 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 around there, around there. Yeah, around around that. T- okay, so Dead New World was 2010. Okay, well, whatever. So I must have been doing this crap between uh, One Nation Underground and Enigma. But the uh, the funny thing was is that uh, at the time, Joe and I, Joe and I were in this this hardcore band, uh, which is what everybody was like really into. Like we sounded like this like under oath stuff. Like Joe played drums and I sang, um, and uh, it, it, you know it was it was it was what it was, but. Uh, I remember at, back at that time, it was really hard to figure out how to like promote your band because like we were we were signed to a label, but it was like a really a, like underground, like nobody would ever heard of it label, you know. And um, I remember I signed up for all these message boards, um, all these band message boards. So I was like, well, what bands do I like? So like I signed up for like the Stone Sour uh, message board. I, I signed up for the uh, Il Nino message board. I signed up for the Slipknot message board, and I was just like, hey, everybody should come check out my band or whatever. And I remember like the people that were on the El Nino board, like the first I, I made my post, like my spam post, you know, like, Hey, check out, you know, you should check out our stuff, you know, El Nino, they scream. I scream too. It's cool. Like you should check it out, you know? Um, and then, um, dude, they like tore me apart. Like immediately. Yeah. Like, they're just like, what do you, you know, like, what are you doing here? We're here to talk about how much we love El Nino and you're doing this, you know, and yada, yada, yada. And then, but like, what was interesting about that community of people was that they, they tore me apart initially. They're like, dude, what you did here was really not cool. Um, if you like the band, that's cool. You know what I mean? Like, we'll talk to you about that, but we don't, we don't really care about your band. Like if we think you're a cool dude, maybe we'll check out your band. You know, like it was just, it was just one of those things. And, um, but I ended up being on that community for like two years after that. I mean, the fans really used to like keep in touch with each other on that. That was before social media. Yeah, there was social media before social media. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because there, I mean, there, there was MySpace at that time, but people didn't really take MySpace as serious as they took Facebook and all that other stuff, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think that I think that that was that was really cool, and it it gave me a newer appreciation for the band because, like, you can almost I don't want to say you can judge a band by their fans, but like these guys were like so passionate and so like all, all about it. Like I, cause I remember like really, really intense, like deep lyrical discussions, you know what I mean? On like every song and, and, and stuff like that. And people being like, you know, I know this song is about this, you know, cause Christian said this on an interview, but like, this is how I took those lyrics and applied them to my life and, you know, like stuff like that. And like that, that's the really cool, that's the really cool stuff. And that is, that is, man. That's beautiful, actually. You know, it, we, were, we were blessed with like loving fans. You know, I imagine they, they took to like us being different and just sounding different and maybe having slightly different things to say. They probably took to that. But yeah, totally. And like that, that got me really, that enamored me to the band in a way that I maybe wasn't before. Cause like I was a hardcore fan on Revolution Revolution. I was weird on Confession. Um, and then One Nation Underground, I was like back into it. But then like to skip ahead to like Dead New World, I remember being like really like a, a friend of mine, a buddy of mine whose name actually is Buddy. That's what it says on the birth certificate. Um, 
That's his actual name. Um, he, uh, he's like, dude, I heard this song by El Nino called God, uh, God is only for the dead. You know? And I was like, Oh man, like, okay, cool. He's like, he's like, check it out. He's like, he's like, dude, isn't this so cool? He's like, it's 2010. And El Nino is just as awesome as they were like back in the day, you know? And I was like, Oh, cool. So like, so then I, I became, I became more of a fan, uh, like even on that. And it's weird too. Cause like, even on uh, like, uh, there, there's a song on that record called, uh, me revolution. And, uh, it's even a little bit of a callback, you know, to the whole, you know, revolution, you know, uh, idea, uh, from the first record. And it's weird because like, even as like a 30 something, like I, that song is still in my regular rotation because, um, I just, uh, I recently, uh, I, I don't know, within like the last six months or so I've, I've gone like a diet. I'm like trying to like improve my life and all that stuff. So like the chorus of that song, like, and that's just a man in all of my dreams, you know, and like all that stuff, like this is part of my revolution. And like, and I know that song is not, not about me trying to lose weight, but like, it is for me, you know what I mean? So like stuff like that is like, whatever we kind of wanted to. You know, that's, yeah. Cute, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. It's awesome that it, you know, it, it connects with you in a way that you can translate it and use it for what you really need to, you know, I love that. I love that. So like, I'd, I'd say it's safe to say that like, I, I've been following kind of the band, uh, since then. So I guess maybe about like 10 years now and plus the, the amount of time I spent prior to that. But like, I think that it's really interesting how number one, the band kind of, Whenever, whenever I say like stayed with the times, I don't necessarily mean like trend hopping or like just doing whatever's popular because like if that was true, there would have been like a dubstep record, you know, like somewhere in there. Um, but there was not. Feel um, metal at some point. Absolutely, but uh, but yeah, like so, like I I followed you as a singer, and, and you know, one of the things that I like the most is that like even like the screams i even whenever we did the discography discussion on you know i was like i was like dude this guy like started off as a monster and then like by the time we get like all these albums in he's more of a monster than like before um in the sense of just just pure brutality the extreme metal vocal and i think like all the stuff that you told me you know prior about being a death metal fan and all this stuff like it it paints the picture so clearly for me that like, yeah, this dude started off in a genre of music that I think a lot of like hardcore extreme metal fans probably don't like, like they call it like the new metal and like, you know, like use it as a derogatory term. But like, as time went on, it was, it became really like legit metal. Like I started like getting soul fly vibes off of stuff. And like, it, it became, it became this, like this, this really huge thing uh for me because i you know and it's weird too like connecting because connecting with this dude that was like from the midwest you know and like didn't i didn't live the same life that you did but at the same re- at the same time i'm hearing these lyrics and i'm applying them applying them to my own life and i i feel like even though like e- even if you're not with that band currently even whenever i was listening to even when i was listening to your new record i still i still kind of got those vibes you know like this that, that kind of like it's almost like a feeling that's created. And is that like, is that a feeling that you try to emote or is that just you? No, it's probably just me. I really have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, as, as like, as crazy as that is, you know, like the first album, you know, we did whatever we wanted to. And then some other things we kind of got to do whatever we wanted to, but on this album, on the acoustic album, 
I got to do whatever I wanted to. The only thing that I knew was, you know, I, I was making an acoustic album, but it, it's probably just me, you know, and the artists I like, the things I'm inspired by and, and how I interpret all of that shit, you know, and how I maybe make like music salad out of it in my head. And these are the things that come out. But I mean, I certainly wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't do the things I do without all the great artists that I look up to, you know, little by little, everybody kind of uh, influenced me to either go in this direction or that direction. And definitely being a death metal head or a death monger, the way we used to call ourselves back then, it, it, it made me be a fan of the darker side of music, whether it's melodic or whether it's brutal, you know, even in my melodic music, I like, I like pop music, but I like my pop artists to be, have substance and like, really good melody and like dark have dark things in there um and and in, in my metal as well you know i mean i love the bands that really experiment and are trying to dig a little deeper than than most bands and that's not to, to say that somebody that wants to have an influence and sound like their influence is wrong for doing it it's just you know sometimes you try different things and that kind of flips a switch and makes you realize some shit that you didn't know before i think that that's a lot of what happened in in my life, I like so many different things. And then by the time we started playing music, maybe I lost a little bit of the um, enchantment with it because of all the business elements and being pushed certain ways. And that probably played out on some of the albums, you know, and certainly I was, you know, musically confused for a while there. Um, but it really, I mean, at the end of the day, it really was just me other than me, like, you know, doing some things on some albums, like straying away from personal topics, which I thought was a huge mistake in my career, you know, but I was just bored of talking about things I've gone through, or perhaps I just didn't have emotions for the things that I went through anymore, you know, probably just tired of talking about my own personal feelings. And I strayed from some topics and stuff like that. And, and this acoustic album definitely made me realize I write my best songs when I'm really just writing about my feelings, man. And yeah. I didn't, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, like if I have a no feeling about something, but I just literally just want to explain it the way I kind of envision it in my head without um, without thinking about it too much. I, I think that the beauty of music is that, you know, um, at least the bands that that really, really make a difference that really, I guess, poke through to me are the bands that that were really trying to make themselves happy somehow creatively first. And um However, their influences, you know, change their, their perception of their own music. However, their own influence maybe made them be more critical. I know that liking great bands always made me be more critical of everything I did. And like, oh, that's not good enough, you know, or that I can sound. Run. So, you know, it, it's, man, I, I was both, both blessed and confused. And this, this acoustic album, luckily, is kind of like a, you know, a, a just a return to who I am really on the inside, you know, the things that I really have to say, um, the kind of music I like to write. Um, it's melodic, it's mellow, but, you know, I, I could easily think of ways that some of those songs could be electric and do so much more. But I think um, at my age also, it's probably, I imagine it was important for me to focus on songwriting and really what does the song mean? And it'll hopefully help me in everything else I do beyond this, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think that, I think it was, it was cool. And I think that, I think that it was, it was a huge risk. And I, I think that like, cause even me, like if I, if I turned around and decided that like I wanted to take this podcast and be like, you know, I'm going to start talking about my favorite R and B artists. 
or I'm going to start even, even though like I have those, you know what I mean? Like, it, you know, nobody that, nobody that says that they just listen to metal, just listens to metal. Right. Yeah, um, right. so it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I listen to that maybe some of the people that are fans of, of, of the podcast probably would think is like pretty cringy music. Um, like I still like that stuff. I still have a passion for it. And so it is inspirational to see, to see somebody take that, take that step because I mean, I feel like it would have been much easier for you to find, you know, find a couple of dudes to, to, to record a record with hook it, you know, hook it up, do like a crazy scream fest, you know, um, something that, something that people would be expecting and something that people over the internet, just send me the tracks and I'll sing over them. You write all the songs. It would have been super yep. easy. Yeah. You could have done I, that. It would have been as easy as like putting a social media post guys. I want to start a new band, start sending me demos of your stuff so I could find who I want to sing for. Absolutely. And it would have been, it would have been super easy. I'll and, get to work on that right now. <laughs> right, well, you, you do that, man. You, He's got like he's got like four guitars there in the background. He's he's ready to I go. See that. What you got back there? Is that a that, you got a bass like a jazz a jazz? Got the classic BC Rich Warlock. Got the bass. Got a Strat hot rodded. Got a Les Paul hot rodded. There's a Telecaster on the floor. Yeah, I'm ready yeah, to go. Texas there, man. Thanks, right man. I'll take yeah, the Joe camera in the other room. Up. You can see the drum kit too. Yeah, oh, Joe's drum kit in there. Nice. I'm ready to rock, man. Yeah, that's Joe is. Uh, he he won't tell you this, but he's an absolutely great guitar player and a great drummer. Um, I'm just a guy that screams like a dying calf over music. You know what I mean? So like, it's uh, it's but a, I make him sound disparity. so good while he does it. Yeah, it's a huge disparity between talent there. But like, um, but man, no, this is this is so cool, and I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that you were open to kind of have a little bit more of an intimate chat about about some of this stuff because. Um, I feel like we live in a world now where people value appearances over, over everything. And I, I, I really, really love that we were able to kind of get into some of the nitty gritty stuff. And, um, and that's cool. And I feel like there's so a lot we can expand on. So like at some point we might call you up and be like, let's do part two, you know, like, let's make it happen. You know, if yeah. like, you want to do like another part of the discography or like touring elements i don't know you let me know dude i, I yeah for I, sure I have a blast being on with you guys if anything some of the things that you wanted to discuss are not things that are ever brought up or asked yeah me, you know so i definitely love being able to you know let you guys know let the fans know like some of the more mysterious elements of how that shit had to happen <laughs> totally totally well this is cool man um well, another th- another cool thing that we do, man, is we do we do those discography discussions. So, like, you know, if we get to a point where I'm like, I send over like a band, like a death metal band or something that you're that you're into, um, I'll be like, dude, so yeah, we're gonna talk about this band and we're gonna talk about it with Christian. It's gonna be awesome. So we should. Yeah, let me know. I mean, I already gave you. I mean, if you ever do an obituary one, you know, we did we did do an obituary one already, but um, you know, dude, we are gonna revisit death here next year. We are going to revisit death. Pavilion, please. I mean, yeah, you my favorite death album, but it all began with that first leprosy listening experience, dude. Dude, Leprosy is so awesome. Everybody loves Scream Bloody Gore. And like yeah, I do too, because it's, it's like, it's so heavy and shocking. Like the, the, the first step from thrash to death metal. The leprosy. Absolutely. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. Because it slowed down. It got a little uglier even. Yeah. That first te- that first finger tap solo on the song Leprosy is just like, like oh my god I like lose my mind when I hear that that's just it's so badass like I can't even can't even explain it but yeah we are gonna revisit that 
like the open casket chorus is just mm. ridiculous, you know? Or even yeah. just like the stop wide, oh, chill, pull the plug. Yeah. That was like the hookiest, like super brutal shit ever for sure. And I, and, and I agree with you that the best parts of death were like the evolution when they got to like the proggy stuff. The human album to me, I still listen to it. Yeah. Every once in a while, I still, still throw human on. Where would they have gone next if if Chuck hadn't died? Like, I mean, like, would they have been like the music would have been just like straight calculus? Like, I, you know, I feel like if they had put another record out, I wouldn't even have got it. Like, because I'm not that smart. But like, it just. What you, or, or you you should ask yourself, what would Chuck Schuldner think of Jen? Oh yeah, yeah, right. That's another good question to ask. I stole my ideas. <laughs> right? Yeah, that is a good question. I'm gonna be awake at night thinking about that now. Like. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome but man we'll let you get back to your night but uh yeah like definitely um i got your number i'll 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 text you some cool stuff man. Anytime, yeah I had a okay. with you guys for sure man absolutely uh give it a couple of weeks for the record to come out i know our record the record to come out the podcast to come out um i like these definitions keep it going hey joe dan thank you guys so much for having me on man christian right. we'll see you next time man party on thank you brothers thank you have a great night Nope. You too. And that was our chat with Christian Machado, formerly of Il Nino. Joe, did you enjoy that chat with Christian? Holy shit, dude. Absolutely. This was this was uh this was a ton of fun. It was very eye-opening. I felt very vindicated uh about my uh about my views on confession. <laughs> you know? And uh it, it makes me feel good that that he largely felt the same way. And but that, you know, what I did not know, I did not know that they actually did throw half the record away and that they went in and, and recorded a whole bunch of the heavier tracks. And uh like I said, I was not lying about that when I said I did listen to those I did listen to that record today while I was working. And um you know, here we are. Like I, no, this was a lot of fun, man. I can't I cannot wait to talk to Christian again. This was this was a lot of fun. If your heroes wrote the majority of Revolution, Revolution, then it's okay to meet them because this dude wrote one of the records that no matter what, I will always go back to in some capacity. And being able to talk to him and hear some of those old stories and hear some of the extra details and some of the suspicions that we had specifically about confession, you know, you get to today and those are the pieces of history that people stop talking about or stop remembering. And clearly there was something there, something interesting about that band and the way they were handled by the label. So it wasn't just us. Yeah, it was not just us. And yeah, this, this was so much fun. Uh, I can't wait for this episode to go live, even though if you're listening to me say that it's already live. So there we go. But uh, yeah, definitely, guys, if you have not checked out Christian's solo album, check it out. It's acoustic. It's not metal, but I'm kind of OK with it. I'm, 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 I'm fine with it. I can I can swallow my metalhead pride and listen to the record and enjoy a dark, emotional journey, which is what he gave us with this. And where can people find all of the episodes of the Discuss Metal podcast? I'm glad you asked me that, Joe. Uh, you can find every episode of the Discuss Metal podcast at www.discussmetal.com. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash discography discussion. You can follow us on Twitter at Discuss Metal. You can follow us on Instagram at Discuss Metal. You can send us an email at Dan and Joe Show at gmail.com. 
and we will get back to you. We even have a Discord server dedicated just to discography discussion and discuss metal stuff. You can go over to our show notes and click on our Discord server link, and it will take you right to our Discord server where we are chatting with you guys 24-7, seven days a week, as long as we're awake. If you love discography discussion and discuss metal, and you want to buy some sweet merch and represent us on the street, you can go to our Teespring store, which has awesome t-shirts. There will be a link in the show notes. Check them out. Support the podcast monetarily. If you'd like to support the podcast monetarily on Patreon, you can visit us at patreon.com forward slash discuss metal. We have some sweet perks. This has been Discuss Metal with Christian Machado, presented by DiscussMetal.com. 